And just that dude seeing that I could draw, that I had good paper, the meaning I wasn't in there for a sex offense. I wasn't in there for snitching on somebody. Um, and I wasn't in there for, for killing or harming a kid. Welcome for those tuning in. You're listening to the Rex Crim Show. And today I'm interviewing Josh. Welcome to the show, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me. I think that uh, from the bit of correspondence we had thus far, you have quite an interesting story to share. Um, maybe introduce yourself for those listening. Who who are you? Uh, man, that's kind of a loaded question. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> uh, my name's Josh. I'm I'm a resident of Oregon. I, I'm kind of a nerdy guy. I spend a lot of time, you know, sort of pursuing nerdy interests like comic books and cosplay and. Uh, video games and that sort of thing. You know, I, I have off and on again been pretty involved in my community. Uh, I've sort of taken a hiatus during the pandemic. I'm not sure what my role will be moving forward with that, but um, you know, I I did time and in, in uh, 2000, I did I did seven and a half years, and um, you know, that sort of kind of shaped uh, the direction my life would go in in, in an interesting way, and uh, ultimately that did lead to me. Um, you know, pursuing some of that community activism, uh, as well as uh, kind of helped me double down on my nerdy interests. So, indeed, you've got um, some inside perspective, um, pun intended. And it sounds like you've shared this story in the past, and uh, I'm I'm interested in hearing it again. So, I think we're going to be talking um, much about what's referred to as Measure Eleven or. Um, mandatory minimum sentencing, the one strike rule, if I'm not mistaken, is that setting you up for, for where we're headed in this story? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Tell us, um, before we get into it, how is it that you and I have come to know each other? Uh, you posted on Reddit that you were interested in hearing some people's story, uh, for a podcast. And, and I thought that was, um, you know, any opportunity I can to, to not only share my story, but humanize people that have done time. Um, I jump onto. So, um, I mean, that was really it. I just really liked the, the wording of your post. It seemed like you'd had something, uh, you know, in the works in, in this regard. So, you know, it seemed like a no brainer to, to try to reach out and, you know, tell my story as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking that plunge and for being here and, uh, you've got my interest and I guess anyone listening's interest as well. Um, what do you do on the, on the Reddit sub subgroup? Uh, I think it's the XCon subreddit, uh, that where we met, what, what do you, what do you do on there? What do you find interesting there? You know, I jumped on both that one and the R prison. Um, I, <laughs> I actually was getting hooked on, uh, 60 days in on a and I, I went down that YouTube rabbit hole and, uh, realized that I hadn't really been doing much to kind of give back, um, which was sort of a promise I made when I got out. So while I'm not really doing activism, um, I thought maybe I should start reaching out to see if there were opportunities for pen pal or for just, you know, involving and providing some sort of an insight, whether my, you know, my experience is a lot different than a lot of people who's done time, but maybe that's, that's of value. So I just thought I'd reach in there and, and see what it was about. Um, and sort of saw Here right off are. the bat. Yeah. Usually it seems like posts are, are people on the other side who haven't, done time but are experiencing the repercussions of somebody going in and are looking for insight you know what, what it's like what was it like for them what do i have to look forward to how are they going to be when they get out and that's that's where my work kind of 
focused on was you know, what happens when people get out? Mm -hmm. All too often, I've I've been chatting with a few people about this subject, uh, those who have spent some time inside. And in the last conversation, we were talking about, you know, the invisibility of the issue and the fact that, you know, on your day of release, it's not like there's a comment card for you to fill out. There's no opportunity for you to uh, have your voice heard. Um, And of course, being stuck inside, you're those who are currently in there don't have much opportunity to exercise their voice. So this is, I think, a great opportunity to give visceral account of what it's like, what, you know, what this supposedly the criminal justice system uh, actually achieves on the ground. Yeah. I don't know if I would agree that it's an invisible issue. I think it's a very, very visible issue. And most people are just sort of head in the sand about it. They, you know, if it doesn't if it doesn't involve them directly, either because they were a victim of somebody who did something that required them to go to prison, or them themselves went to prison, or a family member that did time, or something that's peripheral, even, um, I think most people are very well aware that there's a serious issue with our incarceration, uh, you know, process here in America, and it's kind of a, you know, if you don't think about it, then it'll go away kind of a thing. But this helps sort of, you know, put it towards people that aren't peripherally affected that might just have interest. So yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great idea. Well, I, uh, I'm keen to know, as I'm sure anyone listening is too, about your brush up with the justice system, if you can call it that. It sounds like more of a, a hammer, the analogy of a hammer hitting home. I, I don't know where I'm going with that analogy, but it's more <laughs> than just a brush up. Um, I'm curious to know about this you know, where you've spoken about this. I think you mentioned in the um, message to me that you were on a panel previously sharing this story, just shed a bit of light on, um, you know, the activism that you've been involved with as of late or, or before the pandemic. Um, yeah, I shared a few places. So I've, I've been out since 2007. So there's been opportunities for me to speak publicly um, with the different organizations I've been with and they've, they've varied in breadth and scope and kinds of things that they were doing. Um, when I was uh, involved in more of the training mm-hmm. side of activism and, and, and teaching principles to help people become better at active, you know, actively pursuing change in, in the community. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to speak in front of a few hundred people that were interested in organizing and had didn't really know who we were. So I got to share my, my story in a way that, made them interested in participating in our organization and taking our training. And um, we ended up being able to be the ones that ultimately did the training for that whole group. So new newcomers that were being brought in would, would go through our training, the one that we developed. So um, that was one aspect of kind of where I I would share that, um, that story. And then more, more recently uh, I spoke at a panel that was for a, a different organization that were, um, they're actually more interested in pursuing prison abolishment, which I'm not not really sure where I stand on that. But um, they were kind of directed at uh, police reform and and defunding that. And um, so I lent my voice to a panel there uh, and one of their trainings as well. So it's more been just activism specifically. I've I've spoken in front of sociology sociology classes before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, uh, you know, I've talked one-on-one with people that were interested in learning more about this stuff. Yeah. Without a doubt, we're, we're piggybacking on, uh, you know, our, our, this objective of penal reform is timely as there's a real public appetite. Maybe I'm mistaken, uh, uh, in thinking that the issue is invisible, 
because there seems to be nothing but stories of police misconduct and uh, the need for, as you say, defunding the police, you know, the need for change. So um, I think this conversation is timely. I'm going to ask you to share, um, you know, how it is that you came to learn of the justice system, your experience firsthand. But first, I wonder if there's a, if I might have heard a vibrating cell phone or something on the desk, and if I could ask oh. you to no, step sorry even. About that. That's all right. I I have to comment on it. Otherwise, later people will be scratching their heads, wondering what does that sound. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Good, good ear. <laughs> I've I've moved the phone. If I can uh, be cheeky, I'll just ask you also because uh, I want to hear that rich voice of yours um, to to get a little bit closer to the mic, if you're willing. Sure. Right on. How's that? That's great. So nice. let's okay. hear it. Uh, significant time inside, I think, um, upwards of almost a decade. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't my first interaction with, with you know, the law, uh, though I wasn't, I wouldn't really have classified myself as much of a criminal. I was just more of like a delinquent. Um, when I was 16, I, uh, a friend of mine, you know, got, got a little drunk on some OE forties and decided that we were going to, we were going to run away to California. And the only way that we could get there was in his stepdad's van. And, uh, so we, you know, we, we went on a, a very aimless joyride that resulted in us, uh, getting charged, you know, for UUMV. I, I had some opportunities to sort of settle that out of court. Um, I didn't really put a lot of energy into doing that. So I ended up with that on my record. Um, but aside from that, it wasn't like I was, I'm not saying that there's like, you know, being a criminal, I guess, is just being, being somebody who breaks the law. I, I broke the law multiple times, um, but it wasn't a pursuit. Like I wasn't joining, I didn't join a gang or, you know, I didn't, uh, wasn't robbing people at gunpoint or anything like that. I was like drinking at 18 publicly or, you know, passing out in the park because I, I didn't make it home or, you know, start starting shit with people. I wasn't really... I wasn't a thug, I guess. I don't know if that's even a, a correct or, or proper term for it. It's not really, I was just a nerdy kid, man. I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. Um, I mean, and, I mean, there's so many people there. They just are, you know, nobody sees themselves as the criminal per se. It's such a loaded term and, and a bad yeah. term, frankly. Um, I mean, it's just people and, uh, and different people with, with lesser greater degrees of color in their background. Yeah, I guess I guess my experience I'm I'm comparing it to people that like would proudly call themselves a criminal. You know, my cousin absolutely embodied that and enjoyed being called that and I, I wasn't of that ilk. I mean, I knew people like that. My family were all drug drug addicts and alcoholics and and you know, there was all kinds of people coming in. I lived in a house that was condemned as a meth house because they were cooking meth in the basement. I had no idea they were even doing it. Um but Ultimately, I, I hung out with a crowd that, you know, sort of became like a, a pseudo family of sorts. We were all equally as idiot little teenagers as I was. We, we just sort of, um, we, we sort of suffered together and drank a lot. That's, that's really all it was. Um, and then things culminated. Uh, was, a, a, an incident occurred with one of the people that I'd had conflict with before. Um, there was rumors and speculation that, that maybe he had, you know, sexually assaulted somebody at a party and uh, we had backed him up until we heard another rumor and, you know, I blacked out, but from what I understand, um, I thought, uh, I thought he was sexually assaulting somebody at the party, um, and tried to kill him. Um, 
there's still no like she was asleep or was at least inebriated enough that she doesn't even know if that's what happened and he doesn't know if that's what happened anyways ultimately at the end of the day i tried to kill somebody and i tried to kill somebody that i thought i was close to but you know that wasn't really how that dynamic was really working we called each other family but you know we were just a bunch of idiots um at the end of the day i was seven i was uh, 18 years old i'm excuse me 19 years old um I, I committed the attempted murder. I, I had to be told multiple times what I'd even done. So there was a, a disconnect from the start of that feeling of having committed the crime. Um, and, uh, you know, right out of the gate, they, they, the DAs um, sort of hit me with, with two counts, one account, one count of attempted murder and one count of assault one, which in Oregon um, we have a measure 11 day for day sentencing. So that was going to be 15 years at minimum. Um, which scared the hell out of me. I mean, outside of the UMV, it's again, it's not like I was out running the streets or something. Um, not saying that that takes away from the crime. Like I knew that I had done something. I wasn't like pleading innocence and I wasn't trying to get out of serving time. I was just scared, man. I was just a scared kid. Um, so they used that. And as I, and leverage. I, as leverage, yeah. And, you know, looking more into it as I got older and, and learned more about the the, the measure 11 sort of principles is kind of what it was designed to be. Um, mm-hmm. So I took, I took the 90 day or the 90 month plea. Um, there wasn't really an option to take anything else. Uh, it didn't come with any good time. You know, day for day means that I was going to do 90 months. Um, I could end up doing more if I got new charges, but I couldn't do more from just, you know, having to defend myself in prison and end up in the hole or something. Um so, you know, at 19, they, they made you an offer that you couldn't refuse. Yeah. Well, and one, I was I'm not going to say happy to take, but one, I wasn't really fighting, you know, when, when I woke up out of all of the alcohol sort of fog, you know, the, the reason, the reason I don't feel I was much of a criminal is I was too easy to tell on myself. Like I didn't, I didn't rat on people, but when I got caught, I didn't just keep denying it and fighting it. I didn't run from the cops. You know, if I knew I was going to get in trouble and I was going to get arrested, I would just accept that I was okay. I'm getting arrested. I didn't resist. You know what I mean? Once I was caught, I was like, okay, cool. The jig's up. Here's what I did. And I know that's not smart now. Like don't talk to the cops, but it wasn't, I wasn't of a mind that I wasn't trying to make their day harder. I guess if that makes sense. Like I was like, just let's get this over with. I'm going to accept my responsibility for what I've done. And let's get to the part where I, I'm, I'm told the punishment and I'll handle the punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so once, once they gave me the option of taking 90 months, you know, it was for attempted murder. I tried to kill him. I didn't see a reason to try to plea it down to like assault for. Um, so, you know, I took that, I took that plea. It was pretty quick. I was only in jail, uh, I think for five months, around five months. And then once I was able to get that plea, a part of me was also just ready to get stateside because jail sucks. You're talking about county jail as opposed to state level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's just make sure we're not glancing over this or that I've got it correctly. You used a few terms that I'm not all that familiar with, starting with OE40s. Is that a type of beer? Oh, old English, 40, 40 old, old English. English beer. Yeah. Okay. Right on. All right. So, so you're, you know, in your adolescence, you know, you're, you're up to some shenanigans as, uh, as kids tend to be some joyriding involved. And that leads you, um, to, uh, what, what you call a UUMV. Yeah. Unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. 
which is essentially a fancy way of saying joyriding. Uh, it's just a fancy way of saying stealing a car in, in, in any context. Right. Um, it's not grand theft auto, which would be using force, but yeah, it's just car theft. And so, you know, that being a blemish on your record in, in your earlier uh, formative years was something that was relied upon um, when it came to a more serious offense um, that they, that was used as leverage. No, actually, they didn't even bring it up. They thought I was somebody else named Josh and were trying to say that I had um, I had a concealed carry permit, which I obviously didn't. I didn't even understand why that would matter. But they either got my records mixed up or it didn't apply to them. Like it wasn't like you've done this before. This is that's what the dangers of Measure Eleven are for me. Like they didn't take that into consideration. Like Measure Eleven just said you get this as an option whether you've done time or not at that at the time this was uh 1999 2000 um at the time there was no change to measure 11 you could be 16 years old and get the same 90 months that a you know 40 year old career criminal could get hmm. so there's no graduating so there was there would the only option for me would have been to take it out of measure 11 which was in quotes i you can't see my quotes but when you take it out of measure 11 it means that they would have given me a different type of an assault that carried good time but even that had a supplied minimum. So I could have done 80 months if I were good or 120 months if things went bad, which 90 months day for day offered the, the sort of safety net of if things did go bad, that I didn't have to worry about staying in there longer. Right. Um, but even that wasn't like it was, it wasn't offered to me because it was a first time offender. It just was, you know, the, the, the lawyer trying to be hopeful and, you know, do some kind of a deal and, you know, be a lawyer. He actually did a decent job given the, the circumstances. And let's just make sure that those circumstances aren't being glossed over. I mean, you're, you're uh, talking about uh, something that reminds me of um, a seminal work by a criminologist or sociologist uh, named Katz. Uh, and he talked about the seductions of crime and, it, you know, this idea that, you know, crime is messy. It's not ever black and white as it's depa- uh, depicted in popular um, perceptions or media. I mean, this was someone that was close to you that you had a, a dispute over and arguably, I mean, wh- while the mitigating factor of alcohol and there, there might have been room for improvement in your conduct. I mean, at the end of the day, you were responding uh, in a way that was trying to help somebody else. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, it, it also could have been that I was just looking for an excuse to harm him because we'd had conflict about other things in the past. Fair enough. And that, that was kind of where I was at. Like, I didn't I didn't need to go down that road at the time when they were they were offering me my sentence and I was considering going to prison. All I knew was the guilt of it, that I had harmed him in a way that he's never going to recover from. At the time that they were talking to me about different pleas, he hadn't fully even recovered his ability to speak like he was still kind of relearning how to speak because of some of the complications of him recovering from the injuries and um you know i knew his family like what little bit he had i didn't want they didn't need to be in the court they didn't need to deal with all that Mm -hmm. they just needed to move on from it and i knew the best way for them too is for me to just take what plea i felt i could live with which 15 years i didn't feel like i could live with though if that's what i ended up with and that's what i ended up with Mm -hmm. um i obviously wanted obviously didn't want to like just ask them to give me all the time in the world, but that's how it felt. You know, like it, it, it was an awful situation, you know, whatever had happened, it wasn't my job to, you know, drunkenly be convinced I had the uh, solution. Right. 
and you really did mess this guy up. Yeah, I, st- I stabbed him twice in the neck. And I know it seems like I'm really cold about this, but again, I've never been able to remember the incidences or the event. <laughs> Uh, there's like such foggy bits of memory before and after, and I've seen photos, but you know, the, the feeling of emotion doesn't come from the event because it's only been something I've told and repeated. <laughs> the feelings of emotion come from seeing him on Facebook and, and knowing that I've done him harm that that's where, you know, I start becoming affected because I can, I can relate to the feelings of recovery that he's had to go through and understand that I caused that. Whereas the actual event you know, I'm reading somebody else's story at that point. Cause it's just, I wasn't even there for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I did, I, that's what happened. I, it, he was stabbed twice. I, I guess it was, uh, both times in the neck, the, uh, the wounds, they, they bled a lot. And that's where the complications came from. The stabs, the stab wounds evidently were fairly superficial. Um, I, I mean, as they could be as much as they can be were with the location. Um, but the amount of blood that he lost caused a lot of complications. It caused some swelling in the, in the brain and a, like a, a small stroke. He had a blood clot for him. You know, it was looking like he wasn't even going to recover. So part of my plea deal hinged on that, you know, once he was fully recovered, then they went through and, you know, maintained the charges, but they were waiting to modify the charges if that, you know, if that were needed. Contingent on how, yeah, I see uh, on how he, did in in hospital i guess or in in rehab yeah mm-hmm. okay so um yeah i mean you you really have a great deal of insight it sounds like and you've reflected on this and um it sounds like it's not the first time you're telling the story so um so you're at you know you're at a point where you've you've negotiated uh, with your attorney um at court and you're you're handed down this sentence that affords it sounds like no discretion for the judge uh it's something that you know requires you um you serve day for day um in in custody yeah yeah I, yeah the judge the whole pro i don't even remember what the judge said the whole process was so it was kind of fast you know we're just sort of shuffled in you're told and they leave um Honestly, it, it, the shock of it didn't really settle in until a few days after I was in prison. Prison, I, I was sort of in survival mode. So, I mean, he may have said something to that effect that, you know, if I could have, I would have taken this out of Measure Eleven, or you know, this seems like a, a situation where there's mitigating circumstances. I don't know. I don't know if he did. I honestly just don't hardly remember it, even that process. It was all just kind of a blur. Where, where's your family in all of this? Um, my mom and my dad had me when they were really young. Um, and they were kind of burnouts at that point already, even though they were, you know, 15, 16. Um, and you know, young parents don't usually have the best, young people don't usually have the best, um, decision-making skills right out the the gate, at least not modern young people. Maybe they figured that stuff out in like the 1800s or whatever, but, um, you know, they just were, they were the same, basically what I grew into, honestly, they were just, they were just addicts and alcoholics, man. They just partied. Um, most of my fondest or not fondest, but more permanent early memories were me being a little kid at a party, trying to find a place to sleep. Um, you know, and, and there were people there that cared about me and loved me, but there were also people there that just were there to drink and party. So that's just kind of the lifestyle that they led. Uh, my mom got heavily into meth um, my mom and my dad split up when I was eight. Uh, and it wasn't 
honestly, until that point that I realized that anything was wrong with my life, like that I honestly thought we were just a normal family. I didn't really have any metric to go against, or at least I didn't understand how to compare that metric. Like even if I went to a family's a friend's house and maybe their life situation was better, I wasn't old enough to really, or mature enough to really comprehend that there's, Oh, there's something wrong with mine. Like my family does Coke on the weekends and my mom's in a meth addict. Like none of that registered. Cause I didn't see it that way. I just saw it as my parents' family. My parents' friends came over to the house all the time. Um, when they split up though, my mom went pretty hard and I think that's when I really started piecing things together. Um, I lived with my mom for a little bit and then lived with my dad for a little bit and then lived with my grandparents for a little bit as sort of a safe haven. They were always the safe haven. Um, and just sort of bounced around between the three of them for a long time. Well, as a teenager, it seems like a long time between maybe 10 to 15 or 16. Um, and then the bouncing around changed to other people's houses. I just, sort of ran away at that point. Um, my, my grandparents did their best. They, um, you know, they weren't perfect, but they were certainly a better and much more improved situation. Um, and while I stayed there through my, those formidable years, the most, uh, it was kind of too late. Like I was already sort of gravitating towards doing whatever I wanted. Um, and not seeing the opportunity that I had there. Like if I stayed with my grandparents, if I'd have just been able to to tough out being bored, you know, essentially, um, I would have graduated from college more than likely like there, it, it was stability. You know, my, my grandma encouraged me to do good things. She didn't understand me emotionally, but like, it's not like they were going to kick me out for struggling. You know, they, they, they were there for me. Whereas my other parents, which I craved weren't. So I think it was just me just chasing something that I didn't have any idea what it was. So when I found those friends, you know, they, I felt like I'd come home, you know, because I could do whatever I wanted to and still be accepted and not have responsibilities and party like I had been taught people do and um, just fell into it. And, you know, we, we all, this was, this was the new family, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And this was around 96, 97. That I started hanging out with these people. Um, I spent some time on the streets with some of them. Um, we, you know, some of us became juggalos because that was the time to do that when you were a, a dumb little, dumb little white kid in Portland, I guess. Um, and what what is that you said? Just, it's a fan of ICP. I I'm honestly less proud of the fact that I was a juggalo than I am of the fact that I went to prison. If that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, the the concerts were fun, and it was also about inclusion. So we we fell into that kind of inclusivity. You know, we were in a we we had a team now we had other people that we could, you know, claim brotherhood with. And, you know, we, we did start, you know, having kind of a reputation, me and these, these male friends that I had, there were there, I had female friends too, but the men aside of us, we were, you know, everybody called us the brothers. It's not like it, it wasn't a gang, but we all called each other brothers. So that's what they just referred to us as, as we became more belligerent at different parties, you know, we take over their kitchen and drink all their alcohol. And so there was sort of a notoriety to that. And of course we liked that. I mean, you know, we played that up. Um, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking up juggalo. That's not a term I'm familiar with either or ICP. Just clarify. Oh, insane clown posse. Is that right? Yeah. It's about exactly what you would expect a band name like that to be. I see. 
Okay. So it's just a a group that you were, uh, you know, big fans of and you were, you know, creating your own little posse. Yeah, basically, you know, we paint our face up and go downtown and sing their songs like doofuses. It just, we just, it's sort of, uh, at that time, a lot of the nerdy kind of lame people would gravitate towards it. Um, Hmm. You know, I got love for the band just because of the the fact they came from a similar kind of background. They had a shitty life and then they made something of it. Um, But, you know, the lifestyle itself, like it just promoted me to us to just run around even more like idiots, I guess. Mm -hmm. What about uh, education up to that point and and maybe work experience? Uh, You know, so I, I bounced around high schools a lot. Um, I think academically I was, I was intelligent enough to pick up the the source material, but I wasn't, uh, stable enough to just sit for it. Like I could, I could learn, but I couldn't stand learning. I guess, I don't know how to explain that. The best way to explain it, my, my psychology teacher in high school, like I would on my free time nerd out on this stuff and I would be in class. I would just be not basically not paying attention or at least it seemed that way and i remember when i skipped i was skipping class all the time and i came in for a, a pretest. it was like a study group pretest thing and i was hung over and i was barely paying attention i had my head back because i was essentially sleeping and this girl behind me was asking me questions on the test and i was answering them all and i knew all the answers just because i kind of you know i had an interest in it enough that i was learning some of the stuff on the side and when they did teach i was listening and i just remember the teacher like like slapping the table and, and asking me like, why, why can't you just be present for this? You know, you, you obviously are smart enough to get this stuff. You're just, you're just not here. And I didn't have an answer for him. Like, I don't know, but that's kind of what my whole education was, was just, if I had a small interest in it, I would at least pick up the information and I could store it and I was intelligent enough to use it. Uh, but if I didn't have any interest in it, you couldn't, you couldn't force me to learn it. So like math suffered science, you know, some aspects of science suffered, um, <laughs> um, but ultimately I ended up dropping out at, uh, as a junior and then, uh, getting an opportunity to, during the, the process of, uh, avoiding the, the actual court system with my, my, uh, car theft, they gave me an opportunity. If I got my GED, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't end up on my record. So I studied for the GED, but I just, <laughs> just couldn't bring myself to do it, I guess. Um, ultimately, I got my GED in county jail when I was waiting sentencing because I thought that might kind of help my case or right. you know, I figured I didn't have anything else going on, so I might as well at least do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did some college. Uh, there was a, a correspondence course that I did while I was in prison for small business ownership. And then when I got out, um, I attended, I, I'm basically halfway through an associate, so I have a first year's worth of associate credits for business management. Uh, but I didn't end up finishing that. Right. Interesting. You sound like the type of person who does better learning with their hands or with firsthand experience. Um, yeah. Or at my own pace and learning what I want to learn. Like if I'm yeah. interested, I go down some pretty deep, you know, rabbit holes, almost obsessive with it. But you know, if it like math has always been a struggle for me. Um, a lot of it just, I didn't get it immediately. So I didn't pursue it, but art, you know, artistic related things, anything creative. Um, you know, I, I started learning about like how 
small of granules of pigment affected the different paint brands and where they were lined and shit like that. Like I would get pretty deep into it. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about, um, you know, drinking old English and, um, well, I guess all the, the, uh, the, the alcohol that would come with, um, being a, uh, a, an ICP fan and whatnot. Um, I, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I, I'm wondering about drugs, uh, in general. Um, I guess, you know, you hit that, maybe you can color that in a little bit more. I mean, you grew up, uh, somewhat of a transient lifestyle folks who themselves were into drugs. Uh, what was, what, what was drugs and alcohol looking like for you leading up to, um, you know, this incident? Um, you know, the first time I drank, I was, three years old, two years old, I guess. Um, the, the, the whole joke of it was that I, my mom lost track of me at the party and I came up with an empty shot glass saying more. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I remember that or not that I continued to drink after that. But um, when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, I was living with my, my grandparents and um, they were fairly heavy drinkers. My grandma, I think, was more of like a maintenance alcoholic, if that was even the case. I think she just drank after work. Um, so they'd be out drinking after work. And I and I started realizing that I could take a small sip out of multiple bottles and get a buzz. So um, not having the foresight, foresight of what I was going to do two weeks after doing that, like because the bottles would slowly get, you know, get emptier and emptier. Um I did that, you know, off and on anytime I could, honestly, like the buzz was fun and uh, they didn't seem to notice. Um, and then once the bottles got down a little far, then I started adding water, you know, a lot of kids I'm sure did that. A lot of teenagers. Um, and then I started realizing that if I waited, uh, the right time that I could make mixed drinks, um, and my grandma wouldn't notice cause she would just assume my grandpa drank it. So I was making rum and cokes. Um, it wasn't like I was doing that every day at that point, but it was frequent enough. Like I knew that I could get that feeling, uh, and it felt good. Um, the first time I got drunk, I was at a party with some friends and they had 151 and, you know, we just went to town on that. Um, What's 151? These are, I guess, all American references that are uh, showing my true colors. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so one, it's just the amount of proof of the alcohol. So the percentage of alcohol, I think, for 151 is like... Very uh, strong. Yeah, it's, it's basically double. I mean, right. most alcohol is 80 proof, so it's almost double that. Um, yeah, so it'd be, it, a normal bottle, bottle of vodka with twice the potency, but... I think it was rum or something. Um, but, uh, you know, that at that point didn't quite like lead my life. You know, I smoked a little weed, didn't really like it. Um, when I started really heavily drinking though, it was, um, it was nonstop. It was, it was as often as we could afford it. And if we couldn't afford it as often as we could steal it. Mm. And, you know, weed just never stuck with me. My friends were super into weed, but I, I just didn't like how, like I loved alcohol because it gave me the confidence to, to be, you know, it, the, the sort of same story you hear from people that maybe fall into alcoholism that gave you confidence and you felt like you were on top of the world. And, you know, I could talk to girls all of a sudden and I was the life of the party. And, you know, I always overshot the mark, but what stuck the next day was like, Oh, okay. I can, I can numb all my pain and forget all my problems. And people like me all of a sudden, um, 
weed, it just made me like, duh, like I just felt stupid and just sat there. I didn't really, I always sunk in the couch when I smoked. So I, I didn't like it. Um, but my mom being a heavy addict, uh, and, and that, and that increased, you know, when, when her and my dad split up, like, like she really went after that as a career. Um, she, uh, she scared me from it, man. Like I saw her friends and, uh, uh, people that I had kind of grown up with at that point that were almost family. I saw what it was doing to them. And for some reason, even though alcohol really fucked my dad up and other people, um, it didn't scare me like, like the meth and the cocaine did. So for the longest time I was completely anti any of those kind of hard drugs, heroin, cocaine, even ecstasy. Cause I was, I was terrified of it. I, I knew and still know for absolute fact, I would have gotten completely hooked and that would have been my new life. Um, but I did, uh, a lot of hallucinogens. Um, mm. once I broke that seal, uh, I, I pursued, uh, LSD and mushroom trips as often as we could afford as well. Mm. Um, and I know that definitely had a detriment to, you know, the, basically the, the end of my brain development, you know, but from, it doesn't stop until you're 25 and I was doing this shit at 16 and 17. You know, I know I, I, I definitely crossed the wires up there, uh, by, by hitting it as hard as I did. Interesting. A, a, a reoccurring theme. It seems to be on the Rex Krim show is the research that's forthcoming on, um, psychedelics and some of the promise that is showing for, you know, things like overcoming trauma and working on addiction and that sort of thing. Are you um, a proponent to, to any of this or do you have a, an opinion on on uh, hallucinogens, as you call them, um, you know, based on the perspective you have looking back at your life? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to derail too far, but, um, you know, when I was interested in it before I actually did LSD or, or mushrooms or anything like that, I started just kind of reading about it and researching it, you know, so I learned a little bit about uh, Tim Leary and and uh, some of the origins of LSD and um, the psychological applications of it um, before it was labeled a, you know, the, the drug that it's labeled now. It was it was used in clinical trials, not clinical trials, excuse me. It was used clinically to help people with what they with the called an envelope called hysteria. So, um you know, people that were schizophrenic could end up being called hysterical. Um, it was treating people with alcoholism. It was treating people with extreme depression. Um, it was treating people with a lot of un- undiagnosed trauma. Um, and there was a lot of experimentation that was going into that. And from what I understand, it was going really well. Um, but, you know, I don't know how conspiratorial it is, but I blame the CIA for, for messing that up for everybody. The war on drugs didn't help. Not the one that we all know, but the one that was before that. Um, there was a previous war on drugs before Nixon made it a thing that was sort of more geared towards just like LSD and marijuana, like the whole mm-hmm. reefer madness bullshit. Right. Um, and I, th- I think ultimately it was the CIA did some stuff that they shouldn't have with it and got scared because mm. I mean, they were, they were given whole cities LSD to mess with them uh, to sort of just see what would happen. And uh, that's unfortunate because I do think, there's a lot of help there. Um, you know, fast forwarding the most recently before psilocybin was really on the table to be considered a medical, uh, sort of option for a lot of things. Um, I had stumbled onto some, some more anecdotal studies, but at least some kind of documented studies of, uh, psilocybin helping people with cluster headaches. And my daughter has cluster headaches. So, um, we thought we would try microdosing with her, um, 
she was 16 at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was having a, a cluster headache a week, it seemed like. And then when she started microdosing um, frequently, not not like super high tripping balls, but having a scheduled amount of microdosing, her, her frequency went down to like once a year. So Wow. Um, Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of anecdotal uh, stuff coming out about that, and um, but I take your point. We'd, I don't want to derail too far, although this is yeah. all uh, germane to a wider conversation that's happening uh, about the decriminalization of drugs. And well, it sounds like you're the, not from America. Uh, so in Oregon, the state I'm in, um, they passed recently a law allowing psilocybin to be considered for med- medicinal purposes. So it's not quite there yet, but it's getting there. People are starting to see that this is the direction that's going to go. And that's, that's the trend line. Uh, I, I agree. Um, so that'll be the basis of another episode maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm grateful for your insight. Um, okay. So we've circled around and, and given some context and made sense of, um, you know, how it is that you found yourself in front of the court um, you know, and, and you've mentioned a little bit about being in County jail and then, more or less quickly pleading uh, to a, an agreement and ending up in state prison. So let's uh, let's pick up from there, if if you're willing, um, to hear about some of the lessons learned from the inside. Um, sure. I mean, I can uh, like I can still remember the day that I went. Like, so the processing portion of going from jail to prison. You go to, or I went to, an intake center that was a county jail. They've moved it to a different facility, but the premise is that you go in with very little to this intake center. There's some sort of like quote unquote classes that you do, and there's some sort of basically speeches that you're given. Ultimately, you're there for a couple of weeks to sort of acclimate before you end up going full into prison. And it's really just to give transportation and the bed um, bed count time to kind of acclimate to new inmates coming in, really. And to check, you know, to check that you don't have any medical issues and to um, give you a real cheesy psych eval. Um, and yeah, that, that intake was, man, that was, I, there's a lot that I remember from prison, but I remember that intake like it was yesterday. It was horrible. That was the worst, one of the worst experiences of the whole thing. Cause you're just in a hallway, man. And just, you're just there with people that are just waiting to go, who've been sentenced um, to go on to to, to, you know, the real prisons, um, you didn't have anything. So it was two weeks of nothing. Like there was no, we made, we made dice out of toilet paper. Cause we, we couldn't have even paper and pen to write outside of a little tiny piece of paper and a little pencil. Um, but anyway, so once you're from there, you go onto your prison and, uh, the, you know, the first day on the prison yard, so I, I went to my cell and it was a basically immediately yard. So I didn't even make my bed. Um, I just remember feeling like, like I knew I was supposed to feel in danger, but I was still in that kind of uh, fugue state where I didn't really have any emotions associated with my surroundings. I was still sort of surviving the moment. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like seeing the weight pile and seeing people running and like people hanging out, playing cards. There's people sunbathing. And I was like, this feels like I'm at college. Like what, or like what I would expect. I think college is like, this doesn't feel like I'm in a prison. And then I remember waiting in line and um, while I'm waiting for the phones, cause you have a certain amount of time that you can use the phone and there's a queue that you go up to. Um, and like just one of the most vicious fights I've ever seen broke out 
because someone took a minute longer on the phone or something like that. Who knows what the ultimate reason was, but it was all about respect. And they, they, you know, snapped me right out of it. It's like, okay, right. Okay. We're not in, I'm not in college. Like this is not a fun place to be. This is, this isn't, you know, I'm in prison. I need to figure out how I'm going to survive this. Um, and then, uh, I kind of did, like I stumbled into it. Um, I had a cellmate that, uh, was sort of, he's pretty aggressive, but he definitely, he didn't really take me under his wing, but, um, he gave me the three rules essentially. Don't tell him people, you know, my uncle told me the same thing. I kind of figured that like, you know, snitches aren't really, <laughs> people don't like fuck folks tell on, on each other. Um, snitches got stitches. Yeah. Uh, don't tell any people, don't tell on anybody. Don't steal anything from, from anybody, which I kind of internally laughed at. Like, yeah, we should definitely, you know, just steal from people outside prison. Um, <laughs> and then uh, don't be a punk. And to sort of sum up what that is, um, punk or bitch, some prisons have a different version of the same word, is uh, someone that, that it used to be somebody that where the whole prison rape sort of stories came from is if you were someone's punk, then you would do anything. You had to do whatever they told you. Like you, you right. know, and that could devolve into sexual acts. Usually it was, you would buy stuff for them. You would do their chores. You would just, you're, they're subservient. And, um, so the word punk carries that weight. If somebody calls you a punk, then you are one until you, until you stand up for yourself. So he was like, get that word out of your vocabulary. Get the word bitch out of your vocabulary. If you throw that word out there, be prepared to fight. If somebody throws that word at you, be prepared to fight. Um, so he just kind of gave me the rundown, which I do appreciate because I'd, I'd had a different version of that run at, rundown in county. And that wasn't the, the reality of it. He kind of was a little bit more real. <laughs> um, and then I, f- I was kind of drawing in jail. So I, I continued that in there. He saw my artwork and was like, you know, you can make money doing that, right? I didn't, or at least I didn't, I didn't really consider that an option. Um, and he's like, draw me a picture and I'll sell it for you. And uh, we'll split, we'll split what I, what I make, which seemed fucking reasonable to me. Um, cause I was drawing for fun anyways. Um, and that, that ultimately led to me, that changed the course of my time hundred percent. I'm sure of it. Um, even though I was only in that situation for a month before I got moved to a different facility, that stuck with me once I knew that I could not only draw, but now this guy was taking me. He wasn't, I wasn't this dude's punk. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't trying to beat me up. He was, he wasn't, we weren't necessarily equals, but he wasn't looking at me like I was under his foot. Like he, he was hustling for you. He was hustling for me. And now we were, we're not necessarily friends, but I could sit at his table. Um, he, he wasn't, he wasn't taking advantage of me. I wasn't like paying for protection. You got to understand, I was six foot four. I was 160 pounds. I looked like I was 12 years old because I was freshly shaven for court. Um, I was, I, I was 100% not going to have a good time. <laughs> like I was were, just not, you were, you were the fish on the range. It was so not meant for prison. Um, and just that dude seeing that I could draw, that I had good paper, the meaning I wasn't in there for a sex offense. I wasn't in there for snitching on somebody. Um, and I wasn't in there for, for killing or harming a kid. Um, that kind of already gave me a free pass, but that didn't save me from necessarily being taken advantage of in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have fought, but I would have lost, man. I was not, I didn't know how to fight. Um, so him, him taking me under the wing, 
even though I didn't stay in that cell, um, I learned that as it, if I could just, if I could just sort of keep to myself, stay out of the drama and draw, then I was going to be fine. I was going to be okay. Um, so first order of business was hit the way pile, <laughs> put some, put some size on, uh, and get some drawing supplies. And that's what I did. Um, you know, I played cards and I kind of goofed around I didn't work on any self-improvement, but for the first couple of years, I, I survived with no problems, absolutely based on the fact that I could draw. Right. Um, and maybe some friends, some, some friends I still talk to, you know, years later. Um, but it saved my life. This creative outlet is something that you realized in prison. You didn't maybe have that much of a keen interest in, in, in the creative outlet before prison. It sounds like. Yeah, I kind of doodled and stuff. You know, I'd always been that 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 kid whose aunt would describe him as the best artist she's ever seen for drawing some parrot at six years old. You know, I I had um, drawing pads and tablets and stuff that I grabbed over the years. I would draw like. Um, you know, anime pictures or comic book stuff that I saw. I didn't really like study it or anything until prison, but yeah, that was always in creativity was always in me, either writing or drawing. So, um, it was natural that, yeah, that, that would happen. And when I was drawing in jail, it was, it was just to do that, just to pass time and do something fun and creative that kind of helped me mentally. Um, but seeing that I could use it as a tool, it had a lot of power, man. I mean, there were, there were people that would set that would sit down with me and ask me to draw portraits for them that were legitimate shot callers in the prison gang population. Like they, and they didn't require me to join their gang. Like that was the first thing I was worried about was that I was going to have to make a choice and join a, a race gang of some sort or some meth gang. Cause there's a lot of those in Oregon or, or something. And I didn't want to do that. Cause that's not who I am. Um, I'm just not one to even choose race over anything. So I was nervous that that was the, the case. You know, they'd kind of, the guy would come. I remember this dude sitting down. He was fucking gigantic. And I thought he was about to, you know, I thought, well, here it goes. We're going to, we're getting, we're getting into this gang now, whatever it is. Fucking probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes, he is like, he's just looking at my drawing and he's like, you really drew that? And I mean, he obviously knew I drew it cause I'm drawing it. Um, I was like, yeah. And it was just some portrait for someone. And he goes, his like whole demeanor changed. And this was a kind of a turning point moment for me too. At, le- at least what would lead to my, uh, my decision to get into um, activism and mentorship. Like his, this big, tough giant guy, this monster of a, of a you know, danger, um, like totally softened up. And he's like, man, if I gave you a picture of my, of my mom and me, could you put us in the same drawing? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, bro, that would be so cool. It's her birthday coming up. And like, now he's telling me about his mom and shit. Like it's the whole dynamic shifted. And I saw that, you know, yeah, this guy's, this guy probably legitimately kills people for fun, but he's still fuck. He's still a mama's boy. Like he just still wants to be sweet to his mom, even though this is the situation that we're in. And he's chosen me as a, as the outlet for that. It's, it was so bizarre and surreal to kind of be in that place um, and to have those kinds of emotions, you know, it was like, hey, I'm I'm providing a service that's touching lives. Like, he's going to send that to his mom and, and you know, she's going to have some kind of an emotion attached to this because it's them two together and I'm providing this for people. And it, it, I don't know, it just, um, 
more likely of overthinking it, but it, it was, it was a really good experience for me. Yeah. I think, I think this is a really interesting paradox. You're describing the idea of beauty in an awfully austere environment. And so, um, yeah, I, I wonder more about this, the, the idea of art, uh, um, even among, you know, the worst of the worst, so to speak, they still have this need for creative outlet um, or being able to, you know, connect with emotion, as you say. Go on. Uh, it, you know, it opened up a lot of opportunities work-wise um, as well. You know, it just, even though, you know, looking back, I know my drawings were good. I, I was, um, I was good at what I did, but, you know, I just copied what I saw. So it wasn't, I wasn't like a classical artist or something. I just was good at, at mimicking the things I saw. Um, when I moved to, they moved me around a few times. When I moved to um, my third prison, uh, I was in the sort of common area that they had, which was uh, also the chow hall. And one of the people that worked in a, a department called the creative arts department was, was in the chow hall as well. And people were telling him that he should come look at my artwork. And I didn't know who anybody was. I think this was my first or second day in that jail and, or that prison. And uh, I remember him coming over and looking at it. And he's like, like immediately, his first response was like, you have to talk to my boss. And I was like, I don't know who your boss is, <laughs> like, but sure. Um, and he goes, well, he runs the, the creative arts department. He's a coordinator uh, that that sort of started this this, you know, whole job because you have to work in Oregon unless you have a disability that requires you not to. And they'll assign you like, like army assigns you, like you'll, you could end up, you can end up shoveling shit or some, you know, work in the, the bowels of the kitchen, or you can eventually start moving around the different area of that kind of work, but you have to build a reputation of some sort. So like I was probably going to end up as an orderly or something. I hadn't been assigned yet. Um, and he's like, there's this department where we make, you know, cedar strip canoes and put paintings in the bottom of them. And then we sell them to people on the outside. And I was like, where do I sign up for that? Like, I don't want to end up in, in the kitchen, but if you think this will get me in the door, he's like, if I can take this and show my boss, I guarantee you, he's going to want to talk to you. And I was like, cool. So I let him take the small drawing I was working on. Didn't really think anything of it because again, I didn't know this guy. I didn't know anything about the prison I was in. Um, the next day at like eight o'clock in the morning, I got called in <laughs> to this, this guy's office and he's like, all right, so here's the deal. Yeah. I've assigned you the job here. Um, here's what we're going to require of you, which was like, basically if I made something, it had to be sellable. Um, but I didn't really have a lot of rules on what to make. And I, you know, again, it was just a surreal experience for me. Like before that point, there wasn't anything I felt in my life that provided a skill that would, grant me those kinds of opportunities if that makes sense like i didn't really see myself as like a valuable commodity in any way it socially so here i was in this this tiny social environment and immediately like my skills are being sought after um and while the first couple years were me just sort of goofing off when that happened i sort of sort of turned a light switch like okay i can i can do things like i can make things um I'm making things that people are buying on the streets. I'm making things that, that, you know, the, the COs and stuff are requesting. I'm making things that inmates are requesting. So, you know, the convicts will come up and be like, Hey, I want this. Can you do this painting? Um, let me know when it gets shipped out. Um, 
I would let them know it would get shipped out to the place that it gets sold at, and then their family would come and buy it. Um, hmm. The the coordinator treated me like a human. I, at no point did I ever feel like I was an inmate working at some facility when I was working for that man. Like he, I was hmm. just his, I was just his employee, like at a normal job. Like it was such a just the whole experience was so. Um, it was very life changing for me. Um, I learned how to airbrush. I learned how to wood carve. I learned anything I really wanted to have an interest in. He's like, go for it. Just remember, we got to make it so that's something that you can sell. And, uh, once I learned how to airbrush, he's like, you can literally do whatever you want. Um, cause I was, I picked it right up. I was really good with it. Um, he had a bunch of different artists working there. He asked me to do his painting in the bottom of canoe of his canoe that he, he was commissioning, um, personally. And, and, you know, that hit pretty hard. Um, and it's not like during this time, nothing bad was happening. I mean, I was seeing violence all over the place. It was also very addicted to the weight pile. So being on the weight pile, you'd see, you'd see all kinds of stuff go down. Um, but that was my, you know, that job was my, my escape for that. And, um, I went after it pretty hard. Uh, there was an opportunity to make, make a good amount of money in a different area of the, the prison. It was a, manufacturing job it offered a trade um so ultimately i did end up applying for that but in the meantime um i so I, there was a guy who figured out that you could when you spilt coffee on a drawing it, you could use it kind of like watercolor and it, the, the the end result wasn't really all that great from what he was doing not that it was bad like there's no bad art but he was trying to do a portrait and it didn't really work out right um but i was like i could do that um but i couldn't do it in the uh, the creative arts department. So I smuggled out uh, a paintbrush from there. One of those little paintbrushes you get in like a little craft Crayola set. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a couple other little minor tools that I used to kind of make the brush work a little better. And I was making these coffee paintings and um, still some of the best artwork I've ever made, but I was doing it in my cell and there was, a, it, it's all contraband. So even though it's for an artistic purpose, I'm like, I know I could, I could go to the whole for 120 days, lose all my privileges that I've earned, lose that job end up wherever, you know, who knows where, but I really liked how these coffee paintings were turning out. Um, so I took the risk thinking that because the items were small enough that I could, you know, I could always kind of get away with it. Like not that I thought the cops would find it. I would get away with it, but it was easy enough to hide. And I remember this, this guard that didn't usually work that, that branch, um, was doing just random cell like pop-ins and th- threw me completely off, off guard. Like I had no idea, which is the point um, I'm sure of their random little pop-ins. He wasn't doing a cell search, but he was just sort of like opening cells. And during that time, that just usually didn't happen. So when you open the cell, I was like paintbrush in hand and I saw him reach for the radio. I was like, fuck, he's going to, you know, it's, it's over for me. And then he saw what I was painting and he came over a little closer and his hand came off the radio and he was like, He's like, you, you did this. I was like, yeah. And he's like, all right, man, keep it up and bounced. He didn't say anything else. He didn't ask me for any of my stuff, uh, but he would regularly come by like once every couple weeks and just be like, what are you working on now? Um, hmm. Which just, you know, again, it's like, it's just a situation where I wasn't like getting out of trouble or using it to get out of trouble. And it wasn't like, that's how I saw it. It was just, this guy appreciated what I was doing enough that he was giving me kind of a pass. Um, so again, it kind of inflated that power. Like this artwork is more than just me passing the time now. 
Yeah. In a way, it's making me think of the uh, part where in Shawshank Redemption, uh, if you're familiar with that movie, anybody listening, where he's uh, smuggling in material so he can create a chess set uh, yeah, while yeah. Uh, sculpting, sculpting types of rocks. So I... I um, I, it leads me to a point that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm so fascinated by this story where you're you're really describing, um, you know, your art as your creative outlet and, um, you know, capacity to overcome adversity. I mean, this is a story of resilience, um, where usually I think the the narrative around going to jail is uh, is is much more grim. And not as um, not as beautiful, so to speak. So, can you? I, maybe I'm steering you away, uh, and and if I am, then forgive me. We can come back to it. But I wonder if you can shed any light on the idea of popular perceptions. How you think uh, going to prison is depicted in media versus you know your experience having gone through it. Uh, f- you know your insight from the inside. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, big 19. I, I had only that really to go off of. I had an uncle that had done prison time, but it's not like I grilled him on what that was like. I didn't assume that I would be next in line to go. So the only thing I really had to go off of was what I saw in movies. And even leading up to it, you know, the perception was in my mind, I'm in trouble. Like I am, I'm going to have to join a gang. I'm going to have to you know, this is not going to go well for me and I'm not going to come out of here a better person. None of that was on my mind. It was all pure survival based on the idea that it was going to be an extremely violent situation. It's dog eat dog. Um, there's these rules that, you know, this code and, and, uh, I could die in there. Um, just which didn't mesh well with me because I didn't really conform to rules very well. Uh, even those kind, but, um, I'll say this though, Oregon prisons, we have one tough prison here, really tough prison, OSP, in comparison to the other prisons. The Oregon State Penitentiary is the oldest prison in Oregon. It was built in like the 1800s. It's a relic. Um, But that's where all our serial killers are. That's all really hardcore people are. Um, And that's where hard time can be done. It's good time can be done there too. My uncle did time there and he, he, he loved it. Um, but it's, it's more of what an actual prison would be like. I didn't end up doing time there. My time was done out east in the state um, in what is considered, I think, a maximum facility prison, uh, which was almost more like a jail, and some of the other prisons that are out there. And then it was, it was a minimum facilities after that. So ultimately, I didn't really experience the hard prison. So my experience... I, that's why I was saying it was kind of a rare experience. Like I, I was still in prison bad things happened. People got hurt. Sure. I saw stabbings and I saw, you know, I saw somebody hang himself. I saw all kinds of shit, but the things that happened there versus the things that happened at OSP, you know, were just night and day. You know, the danger existed there and I didn't really ever feel like I was in significant danger in these other prisons. I'm kind mm-hmm. of a good, you know, good measure of that. I can kind of tell when I'm in danger. Um, but that being said, so from what I've understand, stood and learned from people that have done time in other states that did time here, the Oregon's a very soft place to do prison time. The, the fact that 
the the gang population here is is kind of weak there are there are gangs obviously that's just going to happen um but it's not like if i'd have done time in like pennsylvania or texas or new orleans uh, or louisiana or um you know any anywhere else where it's really real hard i was going to have to join a gang like that's just exactly what i thought was going to happen here is is how it would go um but because the population here is mostly just it's kind of homogenous. Our, our state has one of the lowest minority percentages as other states. Um, so it's mostly white gangs in there. And most right. of the white gangs are run by meth heads. Excuse me. Um, so there's not like there's a lot of rules in there as far as that goes. You know, very disorganized. Um, I experienced the gangs, but more for peripherals, just for my artwork. Um, so I think as far as media goes, Oregon definitely doesn't line up to any of the stuff that happens in the media as far as like how their perception of prison is. But what I understand of other prisons, some of it's right. Like, so, you know, like the movie shot color, a lot of that is pretty right. Um, uh, the things people could get away with and the things that people do in there was definitely right. I mean, there was, there's been riots and stuff in our prison and bad things have happened, but I think, I think what I thought was going to happen going in and what I experienced had a lot to do with the fact that I experienced it here. Um, I don't know that my artwork would have saved me as well without also having to fight in other prisons. Um, I'm not saying I didn't have to fight like that, you know, that happened a few times, uh, but it wasn't like I felt I was in danger all the time. I think mainly it's the biggest difference. I mean, overall, it sounds like your life prior to going into prison was somewhat directionless, transient, uh, fueled by, you know, maybe drugs and, and alcohol um, without a, 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 a very stable family situation. And, um, and in a way, prison has sort of afforded uh, a level of structure in your life. Is that a fair observation or am I wrong? Yeah, the force structure was fantastic for my development as a human. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, even though I didn't have, it's not like they told me what I had to learn. Um, I could have just sat on my ass and read books and played pinnacle. Like there wasn't any reason for me to have done any of the other things that I did. Um, but because I had a structured set of time, once once those triggers happened in my life, those those agitated moments where, you know, I got the job because I could draw. Um, I was making friends with people like real friends with people that, that I otherwise would probably never have talked to because I could draw, like I was affecting lives that way. I started looking at other ways I could find improvements in myself. Like I wanted to just come out better. The structure allowed that for sure. If I hadn't had that structure, I mean, now that I've been out, it's not like I can kind of force the structure on myself, but um, there's always these pockets of my, my life lately. It's like I go a few months and I completely become as directionless, not to the point of how I was as a teenager, but just not really sure of what I want to do with myself. Um, I didn't really have that in prison. It was pretty focused. Once I decided to focus, it was regularly focused. Like I, I didn't miss a beat. It sounds like the the ability to help others, like making drawings for them in prison or perhaps being a mentor now outside of prison. I mean, it's helping others that is um, causing you to want to help yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of harm and me just doing time wasn't going to pay any of that back. 
you know, that's what internally I've, I've always told myself. Um, and I refused to come out worse than I was when I went in. Um, that just felt like a disservice to my friend and victim, like it just, and his family. Like the last thing I thought I should do or could do is come out a worse person. Like what an absolute waste all of it would be if at the end of it, I was still a piece of shit. Um, not saying it earned me forgiveness, but it seemed like at the very least now moving forward, I have to put more good out than I took. Um, and that, yeah, that a lot of that was helping people, you know, and just impacting people's lives in a positive way, you know, um, just my, my, you know, I had, I had people that, you know, like I said, I, I had other people that were shot callers or were peripheral gang members or whatever they were doing. I never really got into their business, but I knew who they were. You know, one of them was a regular customer of mine. Every year I'd get a picture from him, um, of him and his brother and of him. And I would have three drawings that he would just, he'd be like, Hey, here's your, here's the drawings I want. And then I would draw them. I had an address I sent him to, and then his mom would put money on my books. And then I would get a visit from his mom thanking me in person. And his mom would drive out to wherever I was to come thank me. Like it was, it was fucking nuts. I mean, it didn't make sense to my brain that this is the kind of stuff that could happen. And you know, it was just the sweetest thing ever for her to do that. Um, but also I never knew that guy's a gang member. Like I knew he was, but that wasn't our relationship. Um, I saw that as just, okay, I got to do this continually. That's what led to my activism work as well. It's like seeing that inside of a lot of these men, um, humanity was just hanging out in there. Like sometimes it was just, it just needed the right trigger to come to the surface. And even if just a peak of it came out because I, I could re- you know, find a way to relate to them through my artwork. Um, there was other ways it came out too. And a lot of it came out with just empowerment, offering people the opportunity themselves to go out into the community when they got out and give out a little bit more good than they took. I, I really like this idea. You know, you, you so eloquently point out the, I, this notion of, you know, wanting to reduce the harm. I mean, you acknowledge um, the harm done to your friend and victim. And, um, you know, I find that often the conversation is so misguided in talking about individuals' rights, victims' rights, uh, human rights, you know, but what you're really hitting on is this point of responsibility. I mean, you internalize this sense of uh, of responsibility in, in making right this wrong, Um I wonder what the relationship with that friend or victim is, is, is like now. Do you, uh, you, you mentioned about seeing him on Facebook. Uh, can you describe um, any interaction you might have or how you, how you know that person to be these days? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I can't really describe him without also including our very, what I thought were close friends at the time, you know, it created quite the fallout. Um, and in fact, it affected a lot of people. Um, some hate me and some just wanted to see me get help. Um, so I've, I've had the opportunity to kind of touch bases with a lot of people from that time period. Um, when I first immediately, when I first got out and I was doing, um, the peer mentorship and I was, I was, um, working with uh, a couple organizations. I was going to AA and stuff like that. I, you know, my PO reached out to me and said, Hey, there's this mediation program set up 
um, that your victim has reached out through in interest in talking with you. Um, I was I immediately. Yes. Like, absolutely. And she's like, well, this, this doesn't mean that he's not going to like, this isn't a, a, a chance at forgiveness. Like he could be just there because he wants to yell at you. I don't care. Like whatever he needs to do. Um, this isn't for me. Like I'm not, I'll absolutely be there whenever, wherever, however. Um, to be I, clear, this is, this is once you've been released. Yeah. I was out for maybe six months. And PO stands for uh, parole oh. or probation. Uh, it's kind of the same thing in Oregon. We don't really have a lot of parolees anymore, but PO, yeah. Pro, in this case, post-prison supervision officer, which is, yeah, probation officer. They all kind of have the same purpose. But in Oregon, if you do prison time, while you don't have a sentenced probation, typically uh, you can based on your sentencing. Um, your prison time doesn't end there. You have a mandated, mandated post-prison supervision, which is being on paper for a year, three years, six years or whatever. I was on post-prison for three years. So I had to regularly check in and stuff like that. Work closely with, with that person. Um, That's above and beyond the 90 days of custody or 90 months. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah. It's just tacked on. It's, it's not even a part of the sentence. It just happens. It's really weird. Um, But it also, I had a decent experience with that. I think just because I was doing so much work in the community, my, my PO is like, I got, I got more important. I got people that are like still trying to visit their, you know, their, their, they had more things to worry about than me. So, um, you my had a, you had a great were, rapport. Yeah. A great rapport. She just let me just, you know, pay her monthly. I didn't have to check in. She didn't come check my house and stuff all the time. Like I just, I never even saw her really outside of our visits. Um, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt Josh, but I just no. want to be clear. You said pay your PO, but I think you mean to say pay a visit. You weren't paying her cash or anything like that. Yeah. We paid monthly. You, you did pay money. We, we paid for the opportunity to be, be under close supervision after serving our sentence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. I should, uh, I should have known better. Okay. No, it's no, no one wow. should know that. Like there's no reason why that should happen, but yeah, we paid for that opportunity. Um, 35 wow. a month, I think it was. And then I also had to pay for uh, anger management classes and stuff like that. So and that's just extra outside of all the other stuff. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a fantastic way of phrasing. And I think you're being a little bit facetious when you say paying for the opportunity to be supervised. Uh, I'm fascinated by this and I, I wonder if you can shed a bit of light on that or, or should we come back to that? If you want to tell me about the mediation. Uh, no, that's fine. Um, so yeah, it ever, it, I honestly personally feel it's just kind of a cash, cash grab. Um, it sounds it sounds terribly like a cash grab. It sounds like part of the crime control industry. Is, yeah. Frankly. So this this cropped up right around when um, we did move away. So when they when they went to day for day sentencing, they moved away from parole, which is different. So uh, parole was even different than good time. So. You back in the day, you could get sentenced to let's say seven years. Um, during that time, you could go in front of the parole board if they felt that you were of quality to be released. You know, depending on whatever rulings they've figured out, worked to determine that. Um, you could get out early, and the rest of that sentence hovered over your head until you finished a, a predetermined amount of time, and then that was that was it. You're done. Um, and so, a part of that was to go and see a parole officer and the parole officer could determine if you needed to go back in for the rest of your sentencing. And Hmm. 
being out didn't remove the remainder of the sentence. So if you, let's say, did seven years, you got out three years early, you had that three years over your head until you finished the three years. It's not like if you, in a year's time, only ended up having two years to serve. You still had that whole time you know, saved over your head. Um, when they moved to the, the... The parole could be revoked, in other words. Yeah, at any time. Um, when they moved away from that uh, and moved to post-prison, um, I, you know, maybe I don't have the data for it, but I kind of feel like they needed to do something with all these parole officers, so they invented post-prison supervision, which hmm. is required. Um, like I said, it's not a part of the sentencing. It's not in the sentencing guidelines. It doesn't say 90 months and that. I didn't know about post-prison supervision until I was almost a year to the door. Like I was almost out and I was like, cool, I'm going to be free. And they're like, oh, by the way, you also get to spend three years reporting and paying the state to do this. Um, now, what, wow. I, what I mean by that feeling like a cash grab um, it's not like I deserve sympathy for having to pay for my crime, uh, but I had already paid for it, not with just my sentence, but my sentence contained retro, uh, restitution and um, financial requirements that were not included in this post-prison supervision. The post-prison mm-hmm. is its own thing. You, you blanket, everybody blanket gets the same amount of requirements. I had to attend an anger management class Um because just because regardless of what I did inside, whatever work I did inside, I had to, and I had to pay for the anger management class. The only one available was a domestic violence class. Um, and as much as I am about forgiveness, I didn't want to sit in a room full of men who were going to try to tell me that they were the victims, even though they beat up their wives or whatever was going to happen in there. And I didn't want to hear any of that. My mom got beat up regularly by men. So I wasn't a, like, super excited. Maybe that was the anchor I needed to deal with. I don't know, but it didn't relate to me. So I was lucky enough that the organization I was um, doing work with my, my PO said that I could do that as my anger management. Uh, mm-hmm. And I didn't have to pay for that, but blanket wise, that's what they kind of do. It's just, everybody's tacked on with this and they all have to pay for it. This is sort of the theme of our discussion about, you know, measure 11, where, you know, there's no discretion here. Although in your case, you had a, a, P, a PO that was um, uh, ostensibly understanding and empathetic or, or able to exercise some discretion, I guess, so long as the $35 payment was made every month. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, that's a really interesting side note. So thank you for sharing that. You were telling me about um, uh, your PO advising of a uh, reach out by the victim wanting, seeking, you know, to have contact with you. Oh yeah. So I was gung ho all prepared. I, I spoke with my, my sponsor, which is a, a part of AA Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it's more like a mentor. So I spoke with them. I spoke with my actual mentor through my prison outreach group and, um, 100% geared ready for that. And then he backed out, which was fine. Like I can't imagine what his emotions were, were like, um, but I hadn't had any actual personal contact with him. Um, so over the years I have run into friends who knew him during that time and, you know, have known him after. Um, and it sounds like, you know, he really struggled for a while not just with the physical recovery, but with the the recovery of basically also waking up with the knowledge that I had tried to kill him. Like he was just as blacked out as I was. Um, 
And so it's not a surprise to me that he didn't want to meet me. And as just a general respect for that, I haven't tried to reach out. Um, right. But I was curious. So I looked him up on Facebook um, and he, he honestly looks like he's doing really well. He's really healthy looking. He's, he's, you know, I know people can lie on their social media, but the few posts he had, he was, he was all smiles with this woman that he's been married to. And, um, you know, he's just, he's just going into old age. Like I am, I guess. Um, it sounds like he's a lot more stable and things are going really well for him. Uh, which I, you know, that's all I, I just wanted him to find his own way through life without this, you know, like, I don't know. I never, I don't expect ever to receive any kind of forgiveness. Like that's not any of the reason why I would do any of this stuff. Like however he chooses to respond to this is valid. Um, but I, it was, it was good to see that he's doing well. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you've, uh, you know, you, there's certainly no, uh, ill feeling or, uh, you know, you, you, you seem to be approaching this, um, this life circumstances in a, in a totally responsible way. One that, you know, frankly, you've been able to turn into some good. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I do my best, you know, when I get turned away from an apartment 15 years after release is still kind of, there's still a part of me that's like, you know, fuck you. <laughs> like yeah. give me a chance. What the hell? And then I remember, okay, that's not, if I want to see change there, I gotta, I gotta approach this different, but um, yeah, like I, I wasn't the victim here. You know, and maybe in a long brushstroke of a way I was because our, our, our prison system's broken. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, I wasn't going to come out of here feeling sorry for myself. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, I wanted to ask, we've already sort of talked about your time in the community with the PO, but I'm, I'm sort of wondering about the transition from custody. You know, you'd been in for a significant amount of time and uh, now you're looking at release. I've heard accounts of inmates becoming quite um, uncomfortable with the idea of losing that structure, perhaps even finding ways of having time tacked on. Is there any credence to that uh, anecdote or can you relate in any way, shed light on that oh sure yeah all sorts of stuff would happen to people as they were getting out man um i might not be able to to tell you exactly how they were feeling but at least it could you know the the guy that i saw kill himself was a few months to the gate um he hung himself in a cell because he was scared of getting out um Mm -hmm. he had you know he had a circumstance i don't think i would ever experience myself he was a sex offender and he was facing a lot of community backlash and that's what he feared but um (laughs) You know, there was another guy who done done a significant amount of time and was one of the people that I really kind of looked up to in the AA community. And within a day of getting out, had overdosed on heroin. Like it, it, it there is definitely some credence to that. Um, nobody knows or can understand what it's like to get out of prison without having done it. Like the closest it sounds like that can be relatable. Um, in a general sense is people that have done a, a significant amount of time uh, in, in uh, military service. Um, once they hit civilian life, it's a lot of the same sounding kind of emotions. And I only say that because I've working with a lot of the guys that got out, a lot of them had done both. Like they'd done, you know, they'd done military service and could tell me that this is, this feels just like getting, getting kicked out of the army. Like this is, you know, it's a, it's a messy ordeal. Uh, my experience, I think 
and some of the guys I've worked with experiences were a little bit different because we, the organization I worked with had people from the community coming in and the classes we were teaching, we were teaching as, as, you know, as inmates, we were teaching community members as inmates, but they didn't look at us like that. So we, we had an opportunity to meet people that were going to be in our direct community before leaving. Um, and we worked with them regularly and some of them we could call friends and some of them we could call support. And some of them were just community members that treated us as human. Um, and that did a lot, you know, it didn't save everybody from going back in or, or having an easy time, like a hard time. Like people still struggled with, with being released, but, um, that panic beforehand, like I didn't feel ever that I didn't want to get out. I definitely wanted to get out, but I was nervous for sure. You know, there was, I would say the one that related to me the most was the feeling that at any time something's going to happen and that my time is now going to be extended. Um, even though I didn't really have too much violence directly, you know, pointed my way. I, I did have to fight a couple times just because someone wanted to check me or whatever. But um, just this paranoia that out of the woodworks, you know, someone's going to just pop up and be like, I know you're about to get out, but, and it was unfounded. There was no reason for it. It just, it just sort of existed. And, and it's, you describe it as a paranoia for you where you were concerned that some, um, some bad thing would cause you to, to have an extended sentence. Yeah. Like even all the way up to like the day the door was opening, like getting out of, that was such a weird, it, it, I mean, a lot of it was weird, but being in the outtake, which is the intake and knowing that right on the other side of that door isn't just freedom, but that everything inside this little ecosystem is going to continue on. Like it's going to continue on without me and it's going to continue on at the pace that it's been continuing on, which is this snail's pace completely removed from reality, honestly. And it was like vertigo. It was a very, very surreal and bizarre sense. You know, I was chatting with this guy that I knew and like internally I'm like, dude, I, I, I can't fucking take you with me. Like we, we may never talk again. And you're going to have to just work. Like, I don't know how he worked that job seeing people leave every day. Um, maybe it gave him hope or something. I don't know. I couldn't have personally have done it, but um, yeah, even up in that moment, like having that conversation with him, feeling that sort of surreal kind of vertigo of right on the other side of the story is the world. And this, this little tiny world I'm leaving is going to continue on. Like nothing happened was still the feeling that, they're going to call my name and be like, Hey, we messed up, man. Um, you actually have a couple more years to do. I, it, and it, again, it was not, it wasn't like a panic. I wasn't panicking, but it was more than just a little tickle in the back of my head. It was, it was definitely like, it, it felt, it, I had made it big enough in my head. It felt like it was going to happen, <laughs> even though it wasn't going to happen. You know, I was confident I was leaving. It was still like, man, that could happen. It, it had happened to other people, but, you know, they had charges and stuff that they were facing. Yeah. Reasons. I mean, it's uh, I, sorry to sound like an old uh, broken record here, but I think of the Shawshank Redemption scene again. Uh, I shout out to, to that movie, I guess. Um, yeah. I should be getting royalties or something. But, um, <laughs> you know, that scene where Brooks was here and, uh, you know, it's very telling. Uh, I don't think that 
the general population maybe has a, a firm appreciation of the angst that comes with you know being socialized and then desocialized if that if that makes sense um, you know having to 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 leave a, a life that you'd accustomed, grown accustomed to over almost a decade and in your case actually flourished in um, you know I think that must be uh, quite quite difficult. Oh yeah, for sure. There was some fear, of course, that I wouldn't be able to, like, I could only do this in here. Like I was going to find out that out there that I was the person I was when I went in, that it was only in prison that any of this stuff could exist. Um, There was that fear for sure. It wasn't a fear of, it wasn't the kind of fear that translated to me wanting to stay. I was done, (laughs) but um, that still was there, you know, And, and it was stuff I spoke about. That was the difference I think is I knew those fears existed and I expressed those fears with people and those people didn't just placate me by telling me, no, you're going to be okay. They told me it's going to be a struggle, man, but you, if you work for it, you'll, you'll be able to continue to do this. Like you just, you just have to be prepared for the fact that the work you did here is going to translate to the work you can do out here. You just have to work. And that made a big difference. And, and, you know, what, so what we noticed doing the work with the people that we're getting out, you know, cause I worked with them for two years and helped train folks to be community activists and did my best to kind of integrate myself into that, in that organization. You know, we had a few people come back in from our group, you know, and just be clear, w- w- just clarify for me when you say th- this, this work with uh, agencies, these were agencies coming into the prison uh, that you were assigned to while still an inmate to to help um, reintegrate folks leaving prison. Is that kind of? It, I wasn't assigned to it. I joined it, and it was um, it was free to join. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a it was sort of just sort of a people called it a coal. It definitely wasn't. It was um, we used um, it, it's a larger group called the Industrial Areas Foundation. Um, a lot of a lot of organizers have come out of it. Barack Obama actually was an organizer for that foundation. It's all over what is the it country. Uh, Industrial Areas Foundation. Hmm. IAF, um, and uh, so they have chapters all over the world. And so our training was based a lot on similar trainings of that. Um, this guy Saul Alinsky, who was a big organizer throughout the years, and while I didn't agree with everything that he did as far as activism went, uh, the trainings that we kind of cobbled together from that um that's what we offered we offered you know we we, we sort of taught people the power of of community can have a lot to do with with you know laws changing and how um as far as our our relationship went the power of the community can have a lot to do with how men and women are received into that community when they leave prison and that was always the key for me um, so I wasn't necessarily assigned to help them get out. I was more there to initially just learn how to be a part of my community. And then I learned how to translate that to people that maybe didn't trust it, didn't understand right. it. Right. Right. And that was uh, in, a, in a volunteer capacity while you were an inmate. Yeah. 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 And, and out, um, the same group. Right, which is translated to your activism while in the community as well. Yeah, we what the group noticed was a lot of the organizations that existed, they didn't exist in a way that integrated 
a slow transition out. Like there was no reach in. It was only like once you got out, then you got turned on to these groups. And right. anytime you're, if after you've done time and anytime you, I feel like, are introduced to a new setting or a new group, there's a lot of suspicion, immediate suspicion about the whole thing. Like you have to have all these guards up and protect yourself and be prepared to, you know, book it if you have to. And all these walls you put up. Um, but with this group, it didn't happen because we got all that out of the way a year or two years before we were even released. And so the people that we worked with when we got out were the same people that were coming in. Mm. That familiarity and that, that just cohesion, you know, it, it, it made the transition, I feel, a lot smoother for me. I, you know, I didn't come out just cold turkey and just have to start building relationships. I already had relationships built up. It's it's interesting. I, I just want to draw back a second uh, ago when, or a couple of minutes ago, we were talking about post prison um, supervision, and you know, I think you'd mentioned the doing away of parole. Um, but in Canada, we have what's called the two thirds rule, where you'll be re- released on parole after you've served two thirds of your custodial sentence for that very reason, being able to integrate while there's a mandatory form of supervision uh, over top. Do you think that uh, the, the new approach is effective or is it, you know, being now left to organizations such as IAF? It's hard to say, man. Um, you know, recidivism hasn't really changed over the, the, the decades, to be honest. Um, so it's really hard to pinpoint what works and what doesn't. Um, I know that people that were getting out when my uncle got out were at an institution where they could get a job while they were still serving time. And because of that, he's now a you know professional cabinet maker and has never had to suffer for work. Like he's always had career work and he got that through that. He got that while in prison and he mm-hmm. established his job while he was still in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though he didn't really have a place to live or anything like that, like he lived, he wouldn't stay with my grandparents he was prepared, you know, he, he had, and to me, I think, yeah, I think that's the key, honestly, um, is he had set that up before getting out. You know, he had that sort of set up before setting foot and having to experience the world. He kind of had a taste of it before being fully released. But to be clear now, it sounds like it's more of a stone wall. You, you sort of have to take that initiative yourself or with the help of your post prison officer. Yeah. And that's if you're lucky enough to go to a minimum facility that has an organization similar to ours that offers that kind of transition. And right. most places don't. And none of this is government funded. The, mm-hmm. the, the places that are, are sort of after the struggle. So once people are in a place where now they're homeless and they don't have any other options, there's, there's those they can turn to. And some of those organizations are so overburdened with the currently existing population of homeless that they can't really help folks that are just now falling on hard times from having gotten out of prison. The only service that's really provided is the post-prison that you pay for. Um, And those requirements of of seeing your PO on a regular basis come with the burden of you have a certain amount of time to get a job, regardless of what the job market looks like. You have a certain amount of time to find a stable home, regardless of what the apartment situation looks like. you know, my experience was they handed me a piece of paper and they were like, good luck. What are the repercussions of not meeting the requirements of your post prison supervisor? Um, it may have changed, but for me, if I hadn't gotten a job in a certain amount of time, I would be given a, uh, this is, this always cracked me up. So if I didn't meet the requirements of getting a job or getting a place, 
by the time that they required, or if I didn't have a stable home that they felt was stable for me, like if I moved in with a bunch of fellow drug addicts, like that wasn't uh, a transitional house of some sort, then and I bought, you know, my PO came and saw and didn't like it. I would go back to jail. I would go to prison because my prison term was served. I would be put right. on a uh, post-prison violation, a PO, uh, PV. Um, and it starts at 10 days and it scales up from there. Um, so essentially when you're released and again, it could have changed. This is, this was in 2007 <laughs> when I was released. If I hadn't had things sort of set up for me, um, I would have been given the opportunity of finding some sort of housing on my own, um, required to pay 35 a month for the post-prison supervision. If I didn't meet that payment, then I would also get a, a PV, a violation, um, a certain amount of time to find a job. Whatever services were available were available through like our unemployment office. They weren't provided by the state in any way, specifically designed for people that have done time, which I think is also important. Um, but all these factors sort of just kind of, if you're not prepared when you get out, it's not going to look good. You're, it's not yeah. looking good for you. You're, the prep, the preparation really starts long before you're released. Yeah. And the preparation usually just means someone coming in and teaching how to sign up for Oregon health plan and how to sign up for food stamp benefits. Right. Um, right. And it, you know, overall I can understand why most society, most of our society doesn't want to be like, Oh, let's just, you know, let's just give them jobs and give them houses. Like they, you know, these, these poor inmates at the same time, the states and countries that seem to have lower recidivism, and have a better success rate for people that get out are the ones that as a community come together to make sure that they're welcomed and mm -hmm. not forgiven. Like that's not the point, but just here's the opportunity for you to show me that you're a citizen. Yeah. You know, you want to be, um, we yeah. don't really provide that at least not in Oregon, maybe other States do. Um, well, on, uh, I mean, you're describing this idea of uh, social cohesion and the principle of welfareism. And um, I, would like to think Oregon is, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit more um, orientated towards that than than other, say, some of the southern states. Uh, um, as far as I know, that's the perspective of an outsider. But I, um, I, I, I really like what you said earlier. I mean, on the one hand, you're describing a rather positive outlook and um, you know a resilient one in overcoming. Uh, not just surviving prison, but overcoming it and turning it into a uh, a story of, of personal redemption. But on the other hand, I'm getting the picture that upon your release, you know, there's still ongoing barriers that you're facing, and that has to do with public perception about offenders and convicts. And um, so, can you shed light on you know what is the problem at hand here when we're talking about a broken prison system? Oh man. Um, you know, there's a lot there. That's a, that's a huge, you know, when I try to try to explain to people that I was interested in prison abolishment versus prison reform, like that's the first question is like, well, what's wrong with the prison system? And like, it's just impossible to even really describe where to start. You know, we, we in Oregon up until recently under measure 11, if you were 16 years old and you had 
committed the same crime. You could, you, I was on the bus with a 16 year old kid going to a man's prison for assault one. And he was going to do 90 months. You know, that's fucking baffling to me. (laughs) It was baffling to me. It's like, I'm 19. I'm scared to fucking death. I don't feel like I should be here, but this 16 year old kid, like, yeah, he may have done something bad, but the only solution was to send him to a men's state prison. I mean, that just is anecdotally fucked up. That doesn't make any sense. Like it, and I feel like as a society, we're at a point to where we can start looking more, more at these isolated instances as being absurd. You know, there's, there's a reason why some countries don't, sentence life sentences because it's inhumane and there's a reason why there's countries that have lower incarceration rates and lower recidivism rates and most of the time those countries have better beforehand services meaning they you know our our country got rid of a lot of our mental illness um support and we saw an uptick in incarceration rates our country had the war on drugs and partly that's still going. Um, we saw a huge increase in incarceration rates. So saying what's wrong with our prison system includes what's wrong with our justice system, includes what's wrong with our policing system, includes what's wrong with our drug reform system. There's too many systems that are involved. You know, we have private prisons and still have private prisons that operate at a profit. Um, we had we had judges getting in trouble for literally sentencing kids to, to certain prison sentences because he was getting paid money to provide those prisons with inmates. Like it's, it, it, they, the public perception that people that do time deserve the time that they do, regardless of what that time looks like, um, makes that possible. Like it, the, the overarching issue I would say is societally in this country, uh, we we don't know what we're doing, and the solution has been just give people more time. Like just that'll that'll fix it. You know, people won't do bad things if they know prison time is hard. And us leading the country in, or the world in incarceration rates proves that that's a lie. Um, and again, looking at all the other subsystems that sort of incorporate around that. I don't know where to start. Like, I don't even, I don't even know where to start to, to, to describe overall what's wrong, you know, defund police, maybe, maybe, but like, that's how do you even sell that to people? Like it didn't sell well, you know, like people didn't buy into the defund police. Like, cool. Who's going to come when I actually need help? Um, abolish prisons. You know, we have literal serial, serial killers in prison. Where do they go? There's just too many, bigger problems in all of that. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it starts with kids or kids and how we as a society interact with the ones that struggle and how they struggle as they, they go into adult immaturity, like how, as we as society choose to, to view them addicts and alcoholics and, and the mentally ill and, you know, kids that come from broken homes that just don't know how to actually join gangs um, you know, we've never really understood how to deal with them. And as we progress into more further modern societies, we just decided, you know, fuck it. If they mess up, they go to prison. 
there's a real um, level of corruption that seems to be at play when there's an incentive to have bodies in, in prisons and uh, <clears throat> these policies like mandatory minimum sentencing and, um, you know, it, it, this, the solution seems to be rather about to take care of, of young families, to make sure that, you know, drugs are not at issue to, uh, <clears throat> I'm choking over my, uh, myself here, but I think that, uh, I think you're, you're right on the money and, uh, it has to do with public perception. Indeed, there's no appetite <laughs> for change, um, in fact, there seems to be rather an appetite for stories and sensational accounts. Uh, I point to Netflix uh, as a good example. You know, people are fascinated, it seems, by the um, by the stories that happen in criminal justice, but they're not really interested in in hearing about the solutions that we know which work, which is a robust, you know, welfare state that provides for the needs of individuals. Um, Rather, you know, your situation in the U.S. appears to be more informed by capitalism and by an economy that, um, you know, functions based on bodies in cages. Yeah. Well, yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. You know, there's no services after and there's no services before. And prison's just a warehouse. So, you know, if you're struggling with whatever it is you're struggling with and you end up doing time, uh chances are you're going to struggle with it 10 times yeah. as much when you get out. Cause there's nothing there. Yeah, really you're you're an exception out. to the rule. It sounds like I, I worked on myself, but it's not like that's mandatory. It's not like that's even encouraged. I say, I want to go back. <laughs> like that's all. I just didn't want to go back. And then I, I found things. I stumbled into things. I was very lucky, very privileged in some of the things that I found, you know, um, not everybody could draw their way out of there. Yeah. Could you could you shed a little bit more light on the barriers that you've experienced uh, since your release? You you allude to you know not being able to find apartments and get jobs. What are some of these barriers that you're maybe still overcoming with a record? Um, you know, I think the first one was that social perception barrier. Luckily, it hasn't happened often, but it has happened, and it stuck with me pretty pretty hard. And I think maybe it was a not good that I experienced it, but kind of helped push me towards maintaining kind of a persona that I have of, of, you know, just no, nobody, nobody guesses I've been to prison. Like I don't show up at a party and everybody there look at me and, and think, Oh, I did that dude did time. Like nobody knows. Like, it's not like I hide it. I tell people all the time, but it's always a surprise. And I think that had a lot to do with my opportunities being a little easier to come by. Um, when I, I would say, and I kind of was touching on this before, about the nine month mark, I personally and emotionally struggled with just being out. And a lot of like that upheaval happens around that time for inmates and people that have been released. Same thing kind of happens with people that have been discharged from the army. And that made my situation unstable. I created sort of personal situations where I would lose a job and have to find another one or have to move because I, you know, the relationship I was in didn't work. I never really regained my footing after that first nine month kind of, I didn't recidivize. I didn't commit another crime, but I had a hard time finding that stability. So ultimately my interactions with having a difficult time finding a job was because I didn't just keep the one I had. Uh, But I did. Yeah. I mean, it was, I didn't pass all my background checks. Um, even just recently 
before I found a place I'm in now, I turned in maybe 10 different apartment applications and got immediately rejected. Um, I can't ever drive for Lyft or Uber. Um, I can't, I can't personally get an Airbnb ever. Um, which, you know, it's whatever like that being upset about that. I can only be upset about that if I'm willing to do something about it. And there's so many other aspects of being out that I kind of have to deal with that. Okay, fine. I can't get an Airbnb. If I don't like that, then I should do something to change it. And if I'm not willing to do something to change it, then I just need to accept that that's part of this. Um, so that's been my experience. Like it's not really been that bad, but I don't want to undersell it either. Um, I've had people look at me differently once they find out I've done time. Yeah. You know, I used to have a cosplay group that I was really involved with and there was a, there was a possibility I was going to go into children's hospitals and be able to, you know, as a group go in dressed up like a superhero for these kids. Um, but some of those children's hospitals do background checks and I just won't ever be able to be a part of that. You know, that kind of stuff still hurts, but um, I guess it, it, it leaves this sort of lingering question then, you know, at what point has, have you finished serving the time? Societally, never, ultimately, unless you do something really cool, you know, like uh, we give Tim Allen a pass. He's real funny. You know, <laughs> like it's just weird. The things that our society will decide is good enough um, and will provide opportunity for people to grow, you know, move away from that. We forget yeah. all the time. Uh, certain celebrities have done prison time, you know, or jail time or whatever. Um, but it's just like personally, uh, your neighbor, you find out your neighbors just got out of prison for attempted murder. And it's like, well, oh shit, he must be violent. Uh, mm -hmm. He must be dangerous. And a lot of the times what I've noticed is that the perception of the charge isn't usually what causes people that fear. It's the fact they've done prison time, you know, ultimately, right. which is a bigger problem than... <laughs> I think people really put in perspective. Nobody would really yeah. care that my, that I, if I had told them that I got in trouble for some stuff, but never mentioned that I did prison time. It, like it's, it's just a completely different dynamic than me saying I did seven and a half years in prison. <laughs> they don't even need to know why there's the stigma you find is larger on account of just being affiliated with inst institutionalized. Yeah, life. man, bad people go to prison. <laughs> yeah. That's just yeah. how it's, that's just how it's looked at. Yes, innocent people go to prison too, but until you get to that story, which isn't, which is rare, uh, as well, um, until you get to that story, you, yeah, bad people go to prison. That's what we've that's what we've taught uh, America. Bad people go to prison. Um, but I, I again, like doing these shows, um, speaking publicly, and I feel responsible in a way for presenting myself in a way again that doesn't. Nobody knows I've done time until I tell them. And then when they find out, they're like, well, it, you're not what I expected. And your story is not what I expected. And the people you've described aren't what I expected. My best friend looks like he got out yesterday. He's been out for a few years. And he's, you know, at just as personable as I am. But people, you know, assume that he's done time because he still talks that way. Right. But I'm working on him. Yeah, I see. <laughs> 
Well, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating and you're right. Indeed, um, the, the moral here is not to judge a book by its cover because it's never so simple as uh, reducing someone to a label like con or ex-con. Uh, there's always, you know, so much more um, in, in the circumstances and context around it. So I'm mindful that I'm... Um, I'm eating into your time and well over what maybe we'd anticipated speaking, but I, uh, I want to conclude on, on a positive note, maybe touching on, um, you know, some, some plans that you have for the future. Um, I also wonder if, you know, it's still relevant to, to refer back to the three rules that were bestowed upon you before going into custody. Is there any update or is there any uh, rules that you might, share for someone concerned about focus, you know, looking at going in uh, that might be looking at time or, or even better rules on uh, how to avoid um, custody? What, uh, what advice can you give to folks who it might've been on the path you were once on? I mean, avoiding custody should see, seem pretty easy. Um, not saying that people don't go in for, for being innocent, but for the most part, if you, limit your contact with police and you drastically reduce the, uh, the worry that you'll have to go into prison. Um, that's the simplest way of saying that there's so much nuance. And I think that's the biggest thing is there's just a lot of nuance, even for people that might be going in those three rules might apply. Uh, but some things they don't include are like, don't get yourself in debt. Don't do anything that would get yourself in debt. Even if you can pay it, there's no reason for you to get yourself into somebody else's debt. Cause that, hmm. the, what they might require you to pay back will change. Um, that can include emotional debt too. Like don't, don't start being somebody's, you, that was the hardest part is like, yeah, I couldn't just be people's friends. Like I had to really, really watch out who, who you were becoming friends with because yes, bad, some bad people actually do go to prison. <laughs> I'm not saying all people are bad because they're in prison, but there's some people that, you know, are real predators, man. There's some people that are really there just to take advantage of other people. Maybe that'll mm-hmm. change form in the future. Or maybe they'll have their own triggers and, and something manifests in themselves. But, um, you know, my survival hinged on me keeping to myself. So a lot of it was don't get into debt with other people. Uh, watch my mouth because I am mouthy. Uh, so that should apply to others as well. Um, and, uh, you know, don't find your talent. Yeah. If you have one and if not, um, you know, no one's without talent. You, you, you know, you just do your time. Like, I mean, if you, if someone's going to prison, just do your time. Don't, don't do someone else's time. (laughs) don't uh don't get involved in the drama there's so many things that really just get summed up in uh don't get into debt with somebody and that doesn't necessarily have to mean like you owe someone some cookies like emotional debt's a real thing and it's easy to get wrapped up in the shit well josh i'm uh i i'm at a loss for words i um I guess in a way I'm guilty as well of uh, having expectations. I w- wasn't expecting uh, someone with maybe as much insight and um, such an internal locus of behavioral control. I mean, you truly seem to look at life as though you're the author of your own destiny. And, um, you know, I hear nothing but responsibility and 
in uh, in your perspective and um, and that speaks to your past as well as you know how you see yourself uh, going in the future so what um, what what's one thing that you might be looking forward to um, uh, it sounds like you might have a, a family now that you're working on um, Oh yeah, there was two parts to that question. I, I was like, I knew once I stopped talking, he was like, he asked me two things, and I only answered one, and I cannot remember. That's my <laughs> fault. I, I need to learn to just do one thing at a time. No, that's my fault for getting old, man. Like, <laughs> I forget what rooms, what you know, why I'm in the living room sometimes. Um, you know, I think what I'm looking forward to most in the future is uh, just I, I, I don't know, finding finding something that sticks, man. Um, I'm gonna be 41 this year, and you know, I got a good job, but uh, I I feel like I haven't really pursued anything to the fullest since I've gotten out, you know, and I do have friends that I'm still really close to that I did that time with. And, um, you know, I recently saw one that's still doing really well for himself um, who looked up to me somehow. And, and I guess finding that out's kind of triggered me to to just want to do a little bit more. So I don't know if that means getting involved with activism again or, um, or what, um, I've been sober for the last few years. So, you know, getting back involved with that is, is definitely going to be back in my future now that the pandemic is starting to lift. Um, but I've really been going into this YouTube stuff. Um, I don't know that I'll tell my story and go that route with it, but I've always been involved or interested in, uh, film editing and, um, you know, just, just that kind of creativity, something, I need to do something creative. So that's what, that's the latest hobby <laughs> I've picked up. Um, right on. But yeah, you know, I've been, I've been just really taking it easy on myself and being what my friends said to me was be gentle with yourself. And so I've been doing that a lot more lately and just <laughs> settling, I guess, into older age, yeah. uh, which is fine too. Yeah, it, it seems like, you know, there's sort of two approaches. One of them is punitivity and the other is forgiveness. And you mentioned forgiveness earlier, um, you know, and, and that you're not asking for it. Uh, but I think that, you know, there was something to be said about forgiving oneself. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, how long have you been sober? I've been sober two, I was, I celebrated two years uh, in December. Right on. Uh, so Congratulations. Um, wow. yeah, I had a little, you know, had some bumps along the way, um, had a DUI about three, four years ago, um, that ultimately led to me sobering up more recently, but, uh, I think that was always in the works. <laughs> I'd been in AA and stuff before and fell out of it. So is this uh, California sober that we're talking about, or is this a different type? Well, oh, I, I, I don't know what they're on about, dude. That's, that's a whole, that's a whole other episode topic. Yeah, <laughs> I think chapter, so. I think I'm it, I'm the version of sober that comes out of the AA big big book, um, right. Alcoholics Anonymous, that doesn't inv- include the word God. Like I have a I, I have a group that's um, secular sobriety that I I attend. Um, uh, that doesn't I don't know what this I don't know what the California thing's all about. I know what you mean though. Like people just being sober because you know drinking mud water wasn't good enough or something. Yeah. I, 
I understand what you're saying, but uh, no. I'm being facetious yeah. and uh, you know not at all to take away from your fantastic accomplishment. No, it's uh, fine. I I, I think yeah. they're hilarious. Um, honestly, and and even though this is kind of off off the subject and and whatnot, um, I I'm kind of happy that those those weirdos are doing it because people that are really struggling who maybe didn't feel like they could say they were struggling or now feeling like, well, this is trendy enough. Now I can come out and say that I'm struggling or now I can say I'm sober. So fine. Like if it was like with people with, uh, with uh, gluten-free, you know, pretending like suddenly they have a gluten allergy. I actually have a gluten allergy. So I appreciate them giving me bread options. So <laughs> like, this is kind of the same thing for me. Like, cool, man, you're, you're getting people in, in, in the seat they need to be in. That's fine. Like they're not, they're not taken away from it, but uh, yeah, they're just they're just a bunch of weirdos on Instagram and stuff, right? Is that, is that kind of yeah? It was uh, it was Demi Lovato that I'm referring to that I heard talking about this on another podcast, but uh, but uh, yeah, I mean it's making its rounds in in social media circles, I guess California sobriety, whatever. Oh, the hell nice. that means. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It reminds me of straight edge kids back in the nineties, like right. Yeah. I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's guiding the conversation in the right direction. Uh, you know about um responsibility at the end of the day and i also think it you know is pertinent because it's sort of like what we're doing and being able to have a tough conversation of uh of the prison industrial complex in a way that's packaged um for folks who otherwise wouldn't know anything about it to to maybe contend with ideas that uh, may not be prison abolitionism but certainly could lead to reform yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Again, any anytime it brings more people to the table, uh, I'm I'm happy about it. Right on. Well, I wonder um, if there's any handle or uh, you mentioned YouTube. Is there anything you want to plug here, Josh? I've got uh, industrialareasfoundation.org that I'll be uh, putting in the show notes. Anything else um, that you think we should we should hit? Uh, I'll give you the last word. You know, I don't have anything personally, um, but if people are actually interested in this stuff, you know, take a visit to the R Prison or RxCon subreddits or just, you know, start looking around your community on ways that you can become involved. Um, like my organization that I worked with, your people were able to go back into the institution and, and meet folks trying to get out and do better. And, you know, that opportunity could exist in, in your community. So... At the very least, at the end of the day, just give people the opportunity to return home. Like, don't decide that they're still bad. <laughs> like, just open yourself up to it. Right on. Kind words and uh, spoken by someone who's got the firsthand experience. So thank you so much for taking the time, Josh, and all the best to you. Yeah, thanks, man. This has been, uh, this has been really good. I appreciate it.